you have your Bibles, you can turn to Jeremiah 29 and then also 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In this series, we are asking, where do we go from here? And as I've argued, we must begin by answering the question, who are we? And we have seen in the, few, in the past weeks, we are those who are called by God. We are Americans. And here we have focused on the issue, the question of freedom of religion, which we do not have, which we do not want. If you have any questions about that, you can listen to the second sermon in this series. But in going through my notes, I came across the concluding statement in one of Dave's sermons. There are times when it becomes very clear to me that it must be clear to others that there is something silly about trying to make a religion out of truth. which we would say, Amen. Last week we saw that we are exiles, that we are exiles in a strange sense, in that we have not yet been to the place from which we are exiled. It's sort of like the people in the colony of Philippi. Uh, The the area was given by Octavian, who later became Caesar Augustus, to veterans. It was sort of their, their pension. But Now we're looking at, by the time Paul gets there, the third generation, maybe fourth generation of people who live in Philippi, but they are citizens of Rome, who would say, in fact, that Rome was their home. We live as citizens of Rome. And so Paul writes to the Philippians in a way that he does not write to any of the other churches because they are in a unique situation. And so he can say to them, our citizenship is in heaven, and they get it, in the same way that their citizenship was in Rome. We also look at the Jewish exiles in Babylon, and Jeremiah writes them a letter here in uh, Jeremiah 29, and we see that he tells them that they are called to be faithful in the ordinary things of life, to engage and not withdraw, to be discerning, to be people of hope, and to recognize that things are not out of control. It's the third thing that I want us to consider today, and that is to be discerning. Because we understand the call for discernment, but the way that Jeremiah uses it is something that we don't expect. If you look at verses 8 and 9 here in Jeremiah 29, Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them. One would expect that God would, or that through God through Jeremiah would be warning the Jewish people about the pagan surrounding uh, them, the uh, pagan culture, the false beliefs, the Babylonians. But in fact, the warning is about those within their own group who would be lying to them in God's name. So the emphasis is on discernment within the community of the people of God. And this is what we hear in our second text in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verse number 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? That is, we are to be discerning about the people of God uh, and not focusing on those people out there. Paul is telling them that they are not to judge or pass sentence on the people of the world. 
the reason being in the next chapter, chapter 6, verse 2, that God will judge those outside the church in the future. And the church would participate in that, but that's in the future, that's not right now. For right now, the church is to take the world as it finds it. And as the people of God, and as Paul tells them in chapter 3, they are the temple of God. In many ways, their very existence is a judging of the world because they are standing for what is true and everything else that we find in the world is false. The church instead is to judge its members. That is to say, we are to act responsibly. Now, having said all that, we need to understand that we don't live in isolation. We live within a particular culture and that culture affects us, I think, far more than we realize. We are aware, or we should be aware, of the word and the danger of temptation. We need to be aware that there are various practices or liturgies that surround us. And if we do, it should then help us to appreciate the mechanism of temptation. We looked at this in the past, but just to refresh your memory about liturgies, simply defined liturgy is a form according to which public religious worship is conducted. That is to say, this is the way we do things in a particular setting. Liturgy points to practices, and they make us the kind of people that we are. They prepare us. We're here in the Lenten season, a time of preparation. They prepare us, they prime us to approach the world in a certain way, to value certain things, to aim for certain goods, to pursue certain dreams, and to work together on certain projects. But, as one writer put it, evangelicalism tends to miss the fact that the great tempter of our age is Walmart. The tempter does not roam about as a horrifying monster, but as an angel of light who spends most of his time at the mall. When it comes to habits, we need to recognize that we usually acquire habits unconsciously, unintentionally. Dispositions and habits can sort of be etched on our consciousness if we keep repeating them, if we keep doing the same thing over and over again. You might call it routine, you might call it ritual, you might also call it liturgy. James K. A. Smith has written about this, and I've mentioned this a number of times in the past years. Um, I think it's very powerful. He calls it the liturgy of the mall. And listen to his description. The malls, no matter where you are in this country, are marked by familiar symbols and text. They have large pavilions or sanctuaries, like the vestibules of medieval churches and cathedrals. They have maps that guide one to the locations of various things offered, but the faithful know their way around. The design and layout has architectural echoes that reminds one of cathedrals, mammoth religious spaces designed to absorb all kinds of religious activities happening at the same time. One can wander the labyrinth in which numerous chapels are devoted to various icons. And one can be met in these chapels by acolytes, who offer to shepherd us through the experience, sometimes inviting us to taste and see and smell. There are objects that are deemed precious, one might even say holy, 
which we may then take to the altar, or cashier, making the consummation of our worship. We give the purchase price, we receive the object, and then we are released by the priest with a benediction, have a nice day. And then we leave the temple. This is in part the liturgy of the mall. And it is but one example of the cultural liturgies which shape our habits and our loves. Um, one of the things that we find about the liturgy of the mall is we expect ongoing innovation. That the next time I go to the mall, I want it to be somewhat different. I want the sale to be different, the product being offered different, new styles. You know, all these things are different. So when one comes to church, so what are we going to sing a hymn again? We're going to do the same thing again? It's because we've been affected by the liturgy of them all. So while we, based on what Paul has said to the Corinthians, are not to judge the world or focus on its faults, we need to recognize that we imbibe them, usually unconsciously. In that sense, we need to be aware of the things in the surrounding culture which we fall prey to. Such a matter could be the subject of another series of sermons. It won't be. Uh, but I do want today in the sermon to point to three aspects of the surrounding culture, American culture, which present different liturgies and pull us away from doing what is right. They all seem to deal with the same issue, which I find really intriguing. I've mentioned already in the series that some of this is familiar. We've covered some of this before. Um, and if it's familiar, good. Uh, let's look at it by way of review, but also put it together in a different way we are exiles, and we are exiled in a particular place. This is where God has put us. And what do we find in the surrounding culture? Three things. The first is freedom. If there was one word that could be used to describe what it means to be American, it very well could be the word free. The land of the free, the home of the brave. And as Christians... I think we would argue that that also could be a word used to describe us. We remember well the words of Jesus in John 8, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. By the way, you find this in non-religious settings as well. People saying the truth will set you free. And then Jesus goes on to say, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But the way that our, our world, the surrounding culture views freedom is quite different from what we find in Scripture. Many people see freedom as getting to do what you want. Um, I had it in my notes, I took it out, but I'll mention it. Um, years ago, uh, Ann Armenta told me a story about their oldest son, Hosea, who's now a teenager. But when he turned four, when he got up, he asked his mom, am I four now? And she said, yes, you are, because now I can do what I want. And that's how, I think, as Americans, we view freedom, that we have the freedom to do what we want. If you doubt that, listen to something that happened, I think, five years ago in the Supreme Court, the opinion written, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. It's written by Justice Anthony Kennedy. What is freedom? Well, 11 years ago, I spoke on this at Jason and Gwen's wedding. You've heard it from me before. 
To be free is to realize your inmost nature and to give fullest expression to it by abiding in God's word, by obeying his command, by doing, not just hearing. The simple act of choosing is not freedom. As I told them, one may choose to play a violin with a hacksaw instead of a bow, but is that freedom? One may choose to eat something poisonous, but is that freedom? One may choose to pour sand into the gas tank of his or her vehicle, but is that freedom? The simple act of choosing is not freedom. Choosing well is freedom. That is to say, choosing to obey. Why you choose, how you choose, what you choose. These are all decisive factors in the biblical understanding of freedom. In a book that I've spoken or used in the past, uh, Dale Keene's book, uh, Sex in the Eye World, Rethinking Relationship Beyond an Age of Individualism. He says that there are actually three worlds. The T world, or traditional world, the I world, or individualistic world, and the R world, the relational world. And in seeking an explanation for how our world has changed from traditional to the I, you know, the individualistic world, he says that in the traditional world, relationships were foundational. The world was composed of relationships. Many of these are determined by birth who your parents are, who your grandparents are, who your relatives are. And all of these relationships bring with them obligation. You're to honor your father and your mother. We are told it's one of the Ten Commandments. You're born into a matrix of relationships and you have obligations to all of the people with whom you are involved. Your parents, your grandparents, your siblings, extended family members, neighbors, fellow citizens, and the religious community, the church. Now you can choose not to be faithful. You can choose to be unfaithful in these relationships, but that really isn't freedom. Okay. On the other hand, the individualistic world sees freedom as the absence of obligation, the absence of restraint. You owe nothing you don't have to owe anything to your parents, your grandparents, your siblings, and so on. In the traditional world, it is in freedom that you find contentment and meaning within the relationships, the matrix of relationships you find yourself. But in the I world, it's all about freedom getting to do what you want, and not having any strings, not having any obligations. Aristotle argued that humans cannot be understood independent of the relationships given to us at birth. And he, he defined the good life as the quality of three fundamental relationships, family, neighborhood, and city. You may recall that Socrates was given an option when he was found guilty of corrupting the youth, he could leave Athens or he could drink poison and die. And he did not want to leave home, he did not want to leave Athens, and so he chose to drink the hemlock. These two competing visions, the traditional world and the individualistic world, both talk about freedom and fulfillment. The question is how are they to be understood and how are they to be achieved? 
The Christian faith tells us that faith is not about, or our life is not about deciding who we want to be or what makes us happy. It's about learning who we are and how to find not just happiness, but fulfillment relating to God and one another. I read a quote that I'd seen before about Bob Dylan. He was interviewed uh, several decades ago and was asked about happiness and unhappiness. And he said, you know, those are just made-up words. You know, those are suburban words, if you wish. He said, rather we should talk about being blessed or not blessed. Freedom in a biblical sense is, in fact, not just being happy or seeking happiness, but in fact, finding fulfillment in obeying God. So when Jesus was asked, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. God's law is about two things, loving God and loving one another. But in the individualistic world, the good life is seen in loving oneself. It is all about me and self-fulfillment. And as a result, the word freedom in the surrounding culture cuts us off from obligations to anyone. You may choose to honor your parents. You may choose to love your neighbor, but you don't have to okay? because you have freedom. And this is wrong. A freedom that is a freedom from reality isn't freedom at all. It's really a hostile reaction to the world in which we find ourselves. In the modern world, freedom has become the good. It's the highest good. Freedom is seen as the capability of people to pursue their own desires individually, and it becomes the ultimate goal. And so when we hear the words of Jesus, the truth will set you free, it's like, yes. Like Hosea said on his fourth birthday, I can do whatever I want. This is not freedom. The second aspect I'm going to look at is that of justice. This is something we have not discussed much over the years, uh, but we hear it seemingly every day in the culture around us. This is, again, something about which there could be a series of sermons. I'll limit myself to two aspects. What is justice and what is the focus of justice? As far as the definition of justice, we find justice and righteousness are practical synonyms in Scripture, and they express conformity to God's will in all areas of life. If one is just, one is obedient. If one is righteous, one is obedient. They are conforming to God's will in all areas of life. When humans adhere to God's will as expressed in his law, they are considered just or righteous. And it's the or there, I think, that gets us in trouble. Because in English, we have two different words, and they sort of go in different directions, at least in people's thinking. That justice emphasizes, it is supposed, conforming to society standards. This is what is just in our society. And righteousness, on the other hand, denotes conformity to God's standards or religious norms. And this distinction is not helpful, and it's also not correct biblically. What we find in Scripture is that God is just and God is righteous, and his people are to be just and they are to be righteous. 
But righteous is not a word that we hear much today. Um, And when it is heard, it's usually exclusively in religious matters. And when we hear the word justice, it's almost exclusively used in institutional terms. That is, the state must be just. I don't think anyone says the state must be righteous. It's like, no, that's, that's the church stuff. So I'm pretty sure church and state, state just, church righteous. Um, but I think the real danger is that we don't hear, or we hardly hear at all, the individual must be just. So justice in our, in the culture that surrounds us, is it's seen almost exclusively as an institutional matter. And righteousness is seen as an individual matter. So you have a righteous person, and you're to have a just state. And this is wrong. The first time that we hear this word, just, and justice, is found in Genesis chapter 18, when the three men appear to Abraham, one of them being the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. I told you we would hear a lot about Abraham today. Um, in our first hymn, in the prayer of confession, and now here in Genesis 18. Abraham fixed them a meal. The Lord told Abraham that in the year, Sarah would have a son. And then the three men get ready to leave. The two angels are going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. This is the first time it's heard in scripture about anyone being just. And he is just and righteous. Abraham then when he is told that that the Lord is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah responds Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do, just, uh, do right? And the ESV has do what is just. So Abraham is described as just and righteous, and he sees God as one who is just and righteous as well. So we find that being just or doing justice begins and rests in the individual not in an institution, though institutions are to practice justice, but they are made up of individuals. In one of the more, if not the most familiar verses from the minor prophets, we hear this. This is in Micah 6, 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We, as individuals, are to act justly. And why are we to act justly? Well, hear what Moses says in Deuteronomy 32. Speaking of God, he is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. God is just, and we, as his people, are to be marked by justice as well. So Moses instructed the judges, Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. I don't think anyone is in favor of injustice. But in our culture, we have found that it has failed to appreciate that justice begins with the individual 
not with an institution like the state. It is far, far too easy to decry systemic or institutional injustice because it lets us, as individuals, off the hook. We feel no sense of obligation to be just. Just as it is easier to claim that one loves the whole world and yet neglects to love his or her neighbor, so also the modern conception of justice cuts us off from having to act individually justly. The third aspect, the first was freedom, justice. The third now is history. And as Americans, we just have a problem with history. Um, One could argue that the majority of Americans fall into one of two categories when it comes to a view of history. Either they see it as having no value at all, or they see it as a source of entertainment. Uh, Let's make some historical movies. Uh, We have the history channels. Uh, We can have trivia questions based on history. We are creatures who live in time. Soren Kierkegaard said, we live forward, but we can only think backward. Yet many Americans are happily or unhappily stranded in the present. I came across something uh, I sent to Tom and Dave about uh, 2020 being so bad. Across the country, there is a general consensus that 2020 has been, quote, the worst year ever, close quote. According to studies, 82% of Americans agree that 2020 has been a terrible year of unprecedented suffering and misery. Experts confirmed that 2020 was indeed the worst year, provided you never lived in virtually any other time period in all of human history. To see 2020 as the worst year ever is to be completely ignorant of human history. You don't realize how bad others have had it. Think about this for a moment. 93% of all humans who have ever lived on this planet are no longer alive. I put it another way, 1 in 15 of all humans who live on Earth are alive today, which means 14 out of 15 are not. And yet somehow we are cut off from the past, and not as castaways, but exiles of our own choosing, a sort of self-imposed exile. And why is this? Why is there this disdain or this ignoring of history? Well, let me suggest some reasons. First of all, our history as a nation was a radical rupture from the past, the old world. We're the new world. And so the old world, we left the old world, our ancestors did because of terrible things, and we've come now to a new world. And so the history of the old world really doesn't seem that important to us. Uh, on the back of the dollar bill, Novus Ordum Seclorum, a new order of the ages. Uh, the man who coined the phrase manifest destiny, he was a journalist, John O'Sullivan, our national birth was the beginning of a new history which separates us from the past and connects us with the future only. We have no interest in scenes of antiquity, only as lessons of avoidance of nearly all their examples. The second reason is that democracy, at least as it was practiced in this country originally, 
really produces this individualism that helps us cut off our ties with the past. Alexis de Tocqueville posited that the consequences of the rising of democracy would be an ever-increasing present-mindedness. That is, we're only thinking about now and perhaps the future, but never about the past. He said that as a society becomes more democratic, the bond that ties generation to generation is loosened or broken. People easily lose track of the ideas of their ancestors or cease to care about them. Democratic peoples care little about what happened in Rome or Athens. What they ask to be shown is a picture of the present. And then there's the whole business of technology. Because the technological advances that have come about tend us to view anything from the past as being inferior. We equate technological or changes with progress. We conclude that previous generations were backward. And so, yeah, why would you take them seriously? You won't. Do you want to imagine in your mind examples of ignorance or backwardness? That's fine. The past is full of them. We have years and years of all these ignorant and backward people. And so the past is ignored and we're cut off from it. Some would then turn and quote George Santayana, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And this is actually a sentence taken out of context. I think that's one, pe one reason people like it so much, because it actually, there's a sentence that comes before it, when experience is not retained, infancy is perpetuated. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Um, but I think what he's trying to say is that the past is important. The experience teaches us things, and it's more than simply lessons. There is wisdom to be gained. I would suggest to you that the serious Christian is convinced that, key, uh, that knowledge of the past is key to understanding the present. Not that it will, in fact, help us predict the future, what's going to come next, but it will help us to meet it more wisely. But there's something far, far more important than all of that. Our brothers and sisters lived in the past. They're part of the body of Christ, the church. And if we ignore history, we cut ourselves off from them, what they experienced, what they learned. And thus what we find in the three aspects I've mentioned today is that modern society is poised to cut us off from different parts of who we are. Freedom cuts us off or can be seen as negating any sense of obligation to those who have come before us, our parents, our grandparents, our siblings. Justice is seen as belonging to institutions, which frees us from any obligation to love our neighbor as ourselves, to be just toward other people as individuals. And ignoring history cuts us off from those who came before us, those who are our brothers and sisters with whom we will spend eternity. In the first sermon in this series, I mentioned the following from Ephesians 3. Paul writes that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Paul uses three compound words, sin before it, like uh, synthesis. Heirs together, members together, 
sharers together. And all of this is in Christ. And this is how Paul saw the church, a multiracial, multicultural community, like a beautiful tapestry with members from a wide range of colorful backgrounds with all that diversity woven into a harmonious tapestry. And we're just this part of the tapestry. A lot of it has come before us. And if we ignore history, then in a sense, we cut ourselves off from them. We do not see ourselves as heirs together with them. We do not see ourselves as members together with them or sharers together with them. I mentioned also in that sermon that John Stott sees it as a great drama, that history is the theater, the world is the stage. Church members in every land are the actors. God is the playwright, God is the director, God is the producer. But we live in a time in which either history has been ignored or has been revised and weaponized to achieve a particular goal. I also mentioned a uh, saying attributed to Cicero, not to know what happened before you were born is to remain a child forever. Does that not, in fact, describe the culture that surrounds us? Perpetual uh, state of being juveniles. I'm convinced that this pandemic has revealed the weakness of the church and its ignorance of its history. To begin the process of correcting this, we must realize who we are. Exiles surrounded by a culture that sees things very differently from what we find in Scripture. A culture that seeks to cut us off from those with whom we share ties and obligations in the name of freedom. A culture culture that seeks to cut us off from those with whom we share ties, our neighbors, in the name of justice. It is a culture that seeks to cut us off from those who came before us, from their experiences, their wisdom, their pain and sorrow, and their joy. We see ourselves as standing alone in the present moment. We are the people of God, we are exiles, we are exiles in this place right now, and we are surrounded by a culture that practices various liturgies, and those liturgies include a view of freedom, of no obligation, of justice, but not, I don't have to be just, the state does. It's systemic whatever, that's the problem. The reality that the problem could be me as an individual, of course not. It's not my fault, it's the institution's fault. And a society that has forgotten its past. I remember someone saying that American society knows everything about the last 24 hours and nothing about the last 60 centuries. As the people of God, I mean, look at the Old Testament. I mean, Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Booths, the Tabernacles. These were reminders of what happened centuries before when Israel was freed from Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness. Ancestors, great, 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 great grandfathers. As Americans, that's, that's not how we think. And it has come into the church. We don't judge the world 
We are to be discerning among ourselves. And we need to have a correct view of freedom, a correct view of justice, and a correct view of history. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we have seen, you have determined when and where we should live. And we are here now in 2021, here in the United States of America, in California. This is where you have put us. It is not our responsibility to rail against the surrounding culture, but to recognize how, in fact, it can influence us how it can tempt us to turn away from what we find in Scripture, how it teaches a different kind of freedom and a different kind of justice and a different view of history, usually an ignoring of history. So often we imagine somehow that we are the first generation of Christians We are not. In fact, we would not be here if not for all the previous generations, some of whom suffered terribly, suffered persecution, were martyred, who worked to preserve Scripture, to translate it, to study it, to write commentaries on it, to teach their people. And we now, through books, can read what they wrote. We can learn from them as well. But just as we are affected by the liturgy of them all, we are affected by the liturgies of freedom, justice, and history. Spirit of God, we pray that you would open our hearts, our eyes to see the truth. We are here because you've put us here. We are exiles. We are citizens of heaven. But we are exiles in a pagan culture. Open our hearts, I pray, and teach us. Thank you for this time, this first day of a new week, to gather to worship you. Prepare us as we go out into the world even if the only way we do that is online, we're still impacted by the surrounding liturgies. May we have a sense of your presence. May we listen to your spirit. May he guide us. We're grateful for a new life in this world. Yesenia gave birth to a baby boy. We are grateful and we ask you to watch over her and the baby. Thank you for the great joy that Rosa has in having another grandchild. Again, our Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.